Now then, let me just do a, a quick poll here. Before we began this series called Manger Things, who had never watched the show Stranger Things before? Who had never seen it? Good. Now then, if you have seen it since this series started, raise your hand. Okay, a couple of you have started watching it. Very good. Very good. How many of you who this is your first time in this particular sermon series? Like this is your first time hearing it today? Okay, a couple more. Good, 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 good. Well, I'm glad that, uh, that most of you have been here and have been following along with, with what we're doing. Because for the last three weeks, we have been talking about the story that we find in Scripture. And we have been loosely basing it off of stranger things, or more specifically, sort of the, the atmosphere that we find, or the, extra, the other dimension that we find within stranger things. And just to kind of recap a little bit, it's, this, you know, it's set in this fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana, in the year 1983. And there is this lab that is under the auspices of the Department of Energy. And they do kind of some crazy and some strange things, uh, including testing on human subjects. And they have opened the door to this, to this world called the, the Upside Down. And the show, it centers around these kids. And one of the kids, Will, has been taken by a creature from the Upside Down. And as you know, if you've watched, the show is about trying to get him back. Trying to pull him out of the, the upside down. Well, as I've said for the last four weeks, or the last three weeks, and I'll say again today, the, uh, the connection that I see, the parallel that I see is in the upside down. So for the fourth week, let's read about what the upside down is. It is an alternate dimension existing in parallel to the human world. It contains the same locations and infrastructure as the human world, but it is much darker, colder, and obscured by an omnipresent fog. It is a corrupted and decayed form of the real world. And it's there, right there. That's where I see the parallel. I see the parallel between the upside down, the corrupted, decayed form of the real world, and the world in which we live in after the fall that took place in Genesis chapter 3. God intended for the world to be one way, but sin came in and corrupted it. And now it is a corrupted form of what God originally intended it, originally intended it to be. And so that's where we are. Now, the reason that I'm spending so much time in, one, explaining that, but two, kind of recapping the story of Scripture that we've covered so far is because I want us to keep in mind that the, the most, I think, important way to approach Scripture is as a story. Not just a story that we read when we come to church, but a story that is our story. The story that we live in, the story that affects how we live and affects the things that, that we do. It's the most important story in the world, and I don't want us to, to forget that. I don't want it to be just something that we talk about when we come to church, but that it, it mixes with every part of our life, in our, in our homes, at our 
job in our neighborhoods as we're out and we, we run into people or we have opportunities to serve. I want this story to be what is operating in the background the, the whole time. Because this is not just a story. It's God's story. It's the story of Jesus, but it's also our story. And we can locate ourselves within the story. There's a word that I want to give you. You may have heard it, you may not. It's just it's called meta-narrative. And what that word is, or what it really means, is it is an overarching story that we tell about how the universe operates. Okay? Because a lot of people, their meta-narrative is pleasure. Grab as much pleasure as they can. Do whatever they have to do to live a pleasurable lifestyle. That's their meta-narrative. That's the overarching story that they have. For others, that meta-narrative is pain, it is suffering, it's injustice, it's prejudice, it's racism, it's all of those things. But when we come to Scripture, we see a different meta-narrative. And it's what God has done that trumps all of those other stories. It's where we see that God takes things and all the the wrongs and the injustices that we have experienced and He puts the world to rights. But He does it in some really, really strange ways. But this is the reason why I keep coming back to this. It's the reason why I keep retelling this story each week because I want this to be something that we tell beyond Sunday. Does that make sense? I want us to live out of that story on Monday, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I don't want it to be something that we think about when we get here on Sunday morning. And we're like, oh yeah, let's pick up where we left off. I want it to be like, hey, I know where we're going because I've already been living this story. It affects my life. It affects who, we, who I am. So last week in, in chapter 3, Advent, We know that God's people have gone off the rails. They're deep, 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 deep inside the upside down. Sin entered the world. It corrupted the world. The upside down began to to spread. And so God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Would not allow them to live forever and ever in a fallen state, in a sinful state. So He cuts them off from the tree of life that would sustain their life in that fallen state. He lets them die. But he still wanted to be in relationship with them. So remember, he called Abraham to himself. Abraham, this really old guy, with his really old wife, and they had no children. But that's who God is going to choose to start a nation with. Now, if you or I are in charge, are we going to find somebody like that? Are we going to find somebody that's 75 years old? And then it actually really not start for another 25 years? That's not going to be the guy I'm going to choose. That is pretty strange. Is it not? Come on now, that's strange, right? I wouldn't do that, but God does. He chooses this geriatric couple. And says, you're going to have a baby. Not only are you going to have a baby, you're going to start a nation. Okay, and so they do. They start this nation. It all happens. And it's strange. But before long, 
that nation forgets that they belong to God. God wanted that nation to be the light for all the rest of the nations. But they forgot who they are, and they traded in their distinctiveness. And that distinctiveness, and this was in chapter 2, the upside down, that distinctiveness was that God was their king, but they looked around and they saw all the other nations and said, we want what they want. We want a king, a physical king. And Samuel said, no, you don't. He's going to tax you. He's going to force your people into service. He's going to take your grain. He's going to take your herds. He's going to take your money. You're not going to want this. But they said, no, we do. And so God gives them a king, and it's really a succession of kings. And the experiment does not go real well, because what happens is those kings, for the most part, end up disobeying God, and they go deeper and deeper and deeper into the upside down. The upside down is the corrupted world, the sinful and, and, and fallen world. And it says that those kings, they did evil in the, in the sight of God. And so God raised up prophets, these holy messengers, to go and tell people, to tell God's people, hey, wake up, you're missing it. There's something worse coming if you don't wake up. God is going to make you pay this bill that you have racked up. He's going to call you into account. But they don't listen. As a matter of fact, they kill those guys and continue their rebellion. And so God raises up Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and they go in and they destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And they carry most of them off into captivity. Eventually Assyria rises, overthrows Babylon, and now they are the captors. But God was not content to just let them be obliterated, to let them be wiped off the face of the planet because these are his people this is his nation and there was a small group that remained faithful that stayed true that refused to accept the upside down that it refused to accept the way things were they were this this remnant and ezekiel and micah talk about that that there are a faithful few that are going to be left behind that are going to stay close to God. And it's through that remnant that God enacts the rest of His plan. The story of salvation. And it's really strange how He does it. But it's pointing ahead to something. There is someone that's coming. And now they just have to wait, but we wonder who it is. And that's where we got last week as we talked about Advent. The arrival, the anticipation, the, the looking forward to, to this, this, this coming. God's people are in captivity because of their refusal to turn to God and, and trust in His plan. And so Isaiah began to, to prophesy. Remember this from last week. They will look toward the earth and they will see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. That's the upside down. That's the, the corrupted form of the world. But Isaiah didn't stop his prophecy right there. He kept speaking, and in chapter 9, verse 2, this is what he said. 
He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, a light that has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. They're not left without hope. They're not stuck in the upside down without a way to get out. They now have this, 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 this sliver, this glimmer of hope that something else is coming. They have seen a light in the darkness. They've seen a light in, in the upside down. But the prophecy doesn't end there. Isaiah speaks of another one in, in chapter 40 where he says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. And then the Italian prophet Malachi or Malachi says, See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. They're pointing to something else. They're pointing to someone else. And what we see is in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of the, of the upside down, there's hope. But as Malachi closes, they enter this period of silence. For 400 years, not a single spokesperson from God arises. No one speaks out as if God shut Himself off to the people. And so now they just wait in the silence. Wait, hoping, longing for the advent, for the coming, for the arrival. So now with no further delay, let's get into chapter 4. The forerunner. As Luke opens his gospel, there is suspense that's there. His story is, is primarily about the, the advent of Jesus and his, his life and his death and his resurrection, but that's later on. Luke's going to tell us about Mary's extraordinary pregnancy and Jesus' extraordinary birth, but he knows that he can't just drop something like that on his readers, so he begins setting the stage. And what's really interesting about today, and I'm really excited about where this is going to go, especially if you've been here from the beginning and have been tracking along with this. But what I'm really excited about is that we've got a little bit of overlap between this series manger things and what we're getting ready to do throughout the next year because as we're pushing toward the, the climax of this series over the next couple of weeks, we're kind of in some way starting the next series because what we're going to do for the next year is we're going to look at the life of Jesus. And we're going to spend time in Luke's gospel, trekking along and learning from Jesus as he came to do what he said he was going to do, as he led Israel out of the darkness. And so it's, it's, it's interesting how, how these are overlapping. But as, as Luke chapter 1 opens, the New Testament doesn't really resemble the world that Malachi left us with. The, the empires of the upside down, Babylon and Assyria, no longer dominate the region, but there is a new empire, 
a new empire that's in control of the upside down, and it's Rome. And Rome wants to dominate the entire world. Rome wants to be in control of everything. And so they go on this campaign <coughs> of overthrowing nation after nation after nation, spreading the Roman Empire. And it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. And they establish what is known as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. We think, well, that sounds like a good thing, right? The problem is, you know how they established the Peace of Rome? Through war and destruction through oppression, injustice, and violence. And there, they called that peace. But in the midst of all of that, people were allowed to worship. And so the Hebrews were suddenly allowed to worship their God. And what is really strange, what is really incredible, is that God takes that little opening, that Pax Romana, and He uses it to push through his story. To push through his, his plan. So God's people begin to, to worship. And now it's not just that they, they worship in the temple. But now they, they gather in these communities. And they gather at places that, that we would call synagogues. And they would spend time there together studying the scriptures. New leaders arise known as the scribes and the Pharisees. And as you get to, to chapter five, uh, to verse 5, as, as Luke begins telling the, telling the story, he tells us about another elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what we learn from them in those first few verses is that Zechariah is a priest and he is from the line of Aaron, going all the way back to Moses and his people, which means he's a Levite. If you were a Levite, you had only one job available to you. It was priest. You didn't do anything else. Okay? So there's no aptitude test. There's no trying to figure out where you want to go to college. If you are a Levite, you got one job, and that's priest of God. Okay? That's what he did. And, you know, if you have no choice in what you do, you might have a little trouble getting really excited about what you do, right? But he wasn't. Scripture tells us he's righteous. That he's a good man. <coughs> and if you want to be a really good, devout Levite, you go and you marry somebody else from the line of Aaron. And that's exactly what he does. He goes and he marries Elizabeth. And so you have this wonderful devout couple who has spent their life in devotion to God. That sounds like a fairy tale story, does it not? But notice what it says in verse 7. They had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. Now if you've been following this from the beginning, then there should be censors going off in your head because this sounds familiar. This sounds just like something else, doesn't it? Who does it remind us of? Abraham and Sarah. You see how the stories are, are, are beginning to connect. You see, you know, going all the way back to the, to the upside down to chapter 2 when God called this old 
couple who can't have kids to do an incredible thing, yet God uses them to create this nation. Now you have God doing the same thing. Doing something else strange. He takes this old couple that loves God but has no children and He's going to use them to continue His plan. He's going to use them to bring about the forerunner. And so it just happens that Zechariah the priest was working at the temple in Jerusalem. Now then, during this time, there's 24 priestly divisions. There's 20,000 priests in operation. And what would happen is you'd be out in your local synagogue, and that's where you'd minister most of the time, but then you'd rotate in for a couple weeks a year, and you'd serve at the temple. And if you were really lucky or really blessed, you would be the one chosen to go into the inner sanctuary and get to light the altar, the, the incense, to burn the incense of the Lord. You barely got a chance to do this. But as we see in the story, Zechariah is chosen for that job. Now, then, do you think that just happened? Or do you see that God is working in it? Start reading in this. Around verse 9, it said, It happened that he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of people was praying outside, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Wouldn't you be? Yeah, wouldn't you be afraid? He is in a room where nobody else gets to go. And to get in there, you got to be really good at casting lots or playing paper, rock, scissors, however they did it. Okay, you got to be really good at it. And it just so happens that as they cast lots, it was his lot that was chosen. So he gets to go in there and light the incense. And nobody else is supposed to be in there when all of a sudden there's another presence there. And it's not just a person, it's an angel says he's terrified he's overcome with fear and as i say every time i I preach this or tell this story that has scared me out of my priestly little robes okay i mean that would have been like another joseph happening there okay i would have been gone but then gabriel begins to speak and he says don't be afraid zechariah because your prayer has been heard your wife elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him john There will be great joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So Zechariah receives this this four-part message from Gabriel. One, you're going to have a son. Okay? Zechariah and Elizabeth are part of, they're the remaining part of the remnant. 
Okay, they have stayed faithful to God. They are part of the remnant. And now Gabriel is saying, God has heard you. You are going to have a son. And he's going to bring you great joy. Those of us that have children, we know that joy, do we not? It is a joy unlike anything else. When you, you hold a child for the first time. It, you, you cannot explain it adequately enough, am I right? And for years, this couple has waited. Now, some of us, we understand what that's like. Some of us have experienced seasons of infertility when you just, you're waiting and you're hoping and you're praying and it's like it never is going to happen and then when it does, it's incredible. But imagine waiting until you were really, really old. And all of a sudden, this angel says, hey, guess what? Got a surprise coming. You're going to have a baby. And he says, you're going to name him John. And he is going to bring great joy, not just to you, but he's going to bring great joy to everybody. He's going to be raised in the Nazarite tradition. That's where it talks about no wine and no beer. That means his hair wouldn't be cut either. Why? Because, not because those things are wrong, but because he is consecrated to God. He is set aside for God's purpose, for God's ministry. And then finally, he says he's going to minister in the spirit and the power and in the power of Elijah. He is going to prepare the way for Jesus. He is the voice who cries out in the wilderness. Now then, Zechariah is a priest. Okay, he knows this story. He knows what's supposed to happen. He knows the, the, the prophecies. And he's just learned that his son is going to be the forerunner. Going to be the one that, that prepares the way. But what I love about the story is that Zechariah is human. And he asks a very logical question. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically, do what? He says, how can this be? because I'm really old and my wife is really old how is this going to how is this possible that's a perfectly natural question is it not but Gabriel says wait a minute do, do you know who I am don't you know who I am look at it right there Verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Do you not, do you not hear what I'm saying? Do you not know who I am? I'm, I'm Gabriel. Okay? I stand before God, and God sent me here to tell you that you're going to have a kid. You want to know how this is going to happen? He says, because you did not believe me, you're not going to be able to talk for the next nine months. You're going to sit in contemplative silence until he is born because you did not believe me. Zechariah is asking for confirmation. He's asking for a sign, and he gets one, but it comes in the form of a punishment. For nine months, he's going to sit there, and he's going to think about what happens. Well, okay, so he's in there lighting the incense, and everybody, the crowd's out there waiting. He's supposed to come back out. They know he's supposed to come back out, but it's taking way too long. And, and you know, they, they think something is up. They know something's wrong. 
He comes just sort of stumbling out because who wouldn't be staggering after an encounter with an angel? They know that something is going on because he can't talk. And so he's making hand signals. And how do you do that? How do you describe an encounter with an angel with your hands? I don't know. I might lay down and make a sand angel. I don't know. But they know something has happened. So they get him down. It says when he finished his when he finished his days of ministry, he went home. But right after that, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. For five months, she kept herself secluded, saying, the Lord has done this for me. He's looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. In other words, he is calling me out of the upside down. He is breaking away everything that is trying to choke life out of me. He's turning my, he's turning my mourning into happiness, into, into joy. So four months roll by, and it gets time for John to be born. And the baby is born. And eight days later, they go to circumcise him. And that's when you would name the males. Girls didn't get named for a month. I guess they were just, hey, up till that point. So they go to circumcise him, and they're going to name him after his father, because that was tradition, that was kind of a custom. And Elizabeth says, no, 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 you cannot name him Zechariah, his name's John. And they say, well, wait a minute, nobody in your family has that name, let's name him Zechariah. And so they turn to Zechariah, who can't say a word, and they want to know what he has to say. And he asks for a tablet, and he writes on there, his name is John. And right at that moment, his tongue is loosed, and he begins to talk. He begins to praise God. He begins to speak. It says, fear came on all those who were around him. Now think about this. For nine months, John has done nothing but sit there in silence and contemplate everything that happened back there at the temple contemplate what has happened imagine what is going through his head as he looks at elizabeth in her conditions old and pregnant and he sees her abdomen begin to grow and he feels the baby begin to kick and all he can do is just sit there in his inner thoughts and think about it and contemplate what God is, is doing in this process. For nine months he's been unable to speak a word, but now he comes bursting forth with praise. Now pay attention to this, because if you have been tracking along with us since the beginning of this, you're going to see that Zechariah is going to hit everything that we've talked about in the previous three chapters. Verse 67 it says, then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies 
and from the hand of those who, who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers who led us into this upside-down business in the first place. And he remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore with our father, Abraham. He's given us the privilege, since we've been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness and in his presence all of our days. And you, now he's talking about John, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of our God's merciful compassion. The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's told the whole story. He's hit everything that we have talked about for the last three weeks. John, Zechariah has just tied a bow on everything that we have been talking about. He has just told the meta-narrative of manger things, of, of the Scripture. There is a light that is shining in the darkness on those who live in the shadow of death. It is going to guide our feet into, into the way of peace. So Zechariah, he gives praise to God for what Jesus is going to do. That he's going to bring salvation to all mankind. And then at the end of the prophecy, he begins to turn to his son. He says, you, son, you are going to be the one who are going to turn people back to God just like the prophets of old. You are going to prepare the way for the Lord. You see, with the birth of the forerunner, this long period of silence, this long period of, of waiting is, is coming to an end. The silence has been broken. God has sent His messenger, the one who will prepare the way for Jesus. Prepare the way for the one that is our only hope of rescue from the upside down. And just like any good screenwriter, Luke leaves his story open-ended when he says, the child grew up and became spiritually strong and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. He leaves us wanting more. He leaves us with an invitation to come back. He leaves us with a to be continued. Join us next week for chapter 5, Magnificat. Let's pray.